0: Good evening, everyone. Um, Welcome to our third meeting of the term. Um, It's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, Sasha Golov. Sasha is a lecturer in philosophy at King's College, London. And prior to that, he was a research fellow at Peterhouse, Cambridge. His research focuses on the intersection between the history of philosophy and contemporary philosophy of mind, action, and ethics. He's the author of Heidegger on Concepts, Freedom and Normativity, and the editor of a forthcoming Cambridge History of Moral Philosophy. The title of Sasha's paper today is Self Knowledge, Agency and Self Authorship. Thanks, Sasha. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So I'd like to start by just thanking the organisers for the opportunity to speak to you here this evening, ladies and gentlemen. My talk today deals with a uh, subject's knowledge of his or her own mental states. My interest in particular is in an appeal to concepts like mode or form or activity to try and explain such knowledge of our own mental states, um, and particularly the self description of beliefs. I'm going to begin by making a few remarks about um, scope and about the structure of the paper, and then we'll get underway. So the discussion that follows deals solely with propositional attitudes. I'm not going to talk about sensations. There are three reasons for that. One is that a lot of the agency theories I'm interested in um, impose a similar restriction. Uh, that's because they, have, um, uh, they rely often on a notion of activity that's defined in terms of reason responsiveness that doesn't make much sense when you apply it to sensations. The second reason is that a lot of the phenomenological theories I'm historically interested in have been very suspicious about the idea of a sensation and whether it's a well-formed concept. So they tend not to talk about sensations either. Um, And thirdly, I'm generally quite sympathetic to a kind of Kantian approach where you would have two stories about self-knowledge. As he puts it, you would have a story of consciousness of what we do and consciousness of what we undergo. And these would be two separate stories about self-knowledge. And the story I'm going to try and tell a bit of today is the story about consciousness of what we do um, and I'm going to relate that to this notion of propositional attitude description. So that's the scope restriction. Propositional attitudes, not sensations. Um, although i have to say a little bit about the latter in Q&A if people would like. In terms of the structure, there are going to be three parts to the paper. And I'll hopefully each will be roughly 15 minutes or so. In the beginning, I'm going to introduce the approach that I'm interested in, this notion of using mode or form or activity, those kind of ideas, to shed some light on uh, self description of belief in particular. I'm going to introduce that in the first section by contrasting it with two, what I'll call, extreme alternatives. Um, And as always happens in this paper, whenever anyone thinks that, two extreme alternatives, I'm then going to claim that my view is happily in the middle, and um, that's why it's attractive. So... I'll do that in the first section. I'll introduce it in relation to these two extreme alternatives. In the second section, I'm going to say something about the work of Richard Moran and the way in which I think his work might help shed some light on this sort of alternative approach I'm interested in. And in the final section, I'm going to say something about how my own views differ from Moran's. Um, Yeah, and I think that will bring us to time. So before I get underway, I just want to say, of course, that I'm... I've learned a huge amount from all of the authors who I'm going to mention today, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them for, for that guidance. Okay, so I want to begin by uh, setting up the issue, and I'm going to use what I suspect some of you will be a wearisomely familiar quote, which is this remark, um, but I still think still very deep and important remark, from Gareth Evans, from the Varieties of Reference. And you can see this on your handout. Um, it's point one. Um, And what he says is this, he says, if someone asks me, do you think there is going to be a third world war, I must attend in answering him to precisely the same outward phenomena as I would attend to if I were answering the question, will there be a third world war? I get myself in a position to answer the question, whether I believe that P, by putting into operation whatever procedure I have for answering the question, whether P. Now, I'm going to call this the Evans case. Like many important philosophical claims, the Evans case seems, I think, simultaneously incredibly obvious and completely absurd. Here's the reason for this. I think it seems obvious because I take it to be an accurate description of the process you would, in fact, go through. So if someone asked you, do you think there's going to be a Third World War? You would, in fact, attend to the same phenomena as if you were answering the question, will there be a Third World War? On the other hand, however, It's a very strange claim, and you can see why if you uh, look at it from two angles. So first, in the example, I arrive at a verdict as to whether I believe that P by considering the truth of whether P. But there are, of course, countless cases where P holds and yet I don't believe it. So the mere truth of P is neither deductively nor inductively linked to my believing it. So another way to put the worry is that you've asked me something about my own mental states, you've asked me about my beliefs, and I've answered your question by looking at a completely different issue, namely geopolitics or Russian tank movements or something like that. So this is the first reason that the Evans um, case is slightly odd. You've asked me to address the question whether I believe that P, and I've answered it by looking at whether P, and it's not clear how those two things will connect up. The second reason it might seem slightly odd concerns the relationship between judgment and belief. So I want to know whether you believe that there will be a third world war. And you've answered it by taking, by undertaking a particular act of judgment about the world. Now, suppose you think of judgments as conscious mental states. And you think of beliefs as dispositions to behave in various ways. Then you can see there's going to be a second problem, which is perhaps you've made a judgment about something, and yet you fail to acquire the corresponding belief. The kind of example I have in mind here, Peacock has a nice case, and again, one that will be very familiar to some of you, where someone judges quite sincerely. They do the reasoning. They think about it. They judge quite sincerely that all undergraduate degrees are equal, but it becomes apparent when you look at who they hire, who they support, that actually they don't have this belief at all. They think that some undergraduate degrees are very poor or of inadequate standards or whatever. So we've got this second concern. We want to know about what I believe, and it seems like we... In the Evans case, we learn about what I believe by making a judgment about the world, but could there not be a sort of breakdown, a misalignment between judgment and belief? So we've got these two problems. How can I make claims about my own mental states by looking outward, so to speak, and how can I make claims about my beliefs just on the basis of my judgments? Now, as I said, I'm interested in a particular response to these difficulties, one that appeals to notions like mode or form or activity. And to introduce that response, I'm going to contrast it with two alternatives. Now, these two alternatives can be distinguished by the stance they take on a principle that, following Byrne, I'm going to call neutrality. So we can say, and this is on your handout at two, an account is neutral if and only if it explains self-knowledge using premises which are not themselves specified in terms of the subject's awareness of his or her mental states. So the first extreme I want to consider it is an account which simply rejects any aspiration to neutrality. So I think Brentano, at least in some of his work, is a good example of this. Uh, And you can see this. If you look at three on your handouts, he says, uh, the fact that the mentally active subject has himself as object of secondary reference, regardless of what else he refers to as his primary object, is of great importance. This is the key bit. As a result, there are no statements about primary objects which do not include several assertions. If I say, for example, God exists... I'm at the same time attesting to the fact that I judge that God exists. Now, one kind of wrinkle here is that, in common with many post Kantian authors, you see a tendency to frame claims about content in terms of claims about objects. Okay, so he talks about primary, secondary objects, let's talk about types of content. And it seems to me that what he's claiming in this passage, at least, at least in this passage, I, Obviously, there are all kinds of issues about how his view develops, and I'll be happy to talk about this if you want. But at least in this passage, he's claiming something like, in cases like the Evans problem, the move is not from P to I believe that P. Okay? So it's not from there will be a Third World War to I believe that there will be a Third World War, which is the puzzling move. How can we go from this purely outward-directed claim about Russian tanks to a claim about the quite different topic of my own mental states? is saying it's not that move, rather... The initial claim also already includes a reference to myself. So the initial claim is not P, but rather P and I judge that P, or something like that. You never have assertions about the world without, in his terms, also having assertions about yourself. So that um, solves the issue very simply. Now, there are lots of problems with this view. One is you might be committed to transparency in the Mauryan sense. You might think that this just isn't the case. You know, we... We make judgments about things out there. It's quite rare and unusual to make judgments about our own mental states. And it's certainly not true that whenever we make a judgment about things out there, we're also somehow making the judgment that I'm judging about things out there. And this is pushed very strongly by people like Cook Wilson. In the tradition that Brentano belongs to, it's pushed very strongly by Sarch, um, who uh, thinking of particular things like transcendence of the ego. So that's the first worry you might have about this. You might say, well, it breaches this kind of Mauryan transparency intuition we have. Second worry is that obviously it doesn't explain self-ascription. It assumes self-ascription. What it does is postulate the idea that we have, uh, as well as the content P, we have additionally the content I judge that P at the initial level of intentionality. And that when we then explicitly self-ascribe a belief, I believe that P, all we're doing is making this um, explicit or open or formulating it more precisely or something like that. So it's not trying to solve the problem of self description And so in that sense, it doesn't uh, speak to the worry that the Evans case raises. But the third difficulty, and I think the the deeper difficulty than either of those, is that it has this spectatorial model of our own self-understanding. So on the Brentano picture, how do I know, um, how am I able to make these kind of self descriptive claims I believe that P. Well, because my own acts are always before my eyes. So when I judge, I look at the world, I judge, yes, Russia is very aggressive, yes, Russia is going to invade here, yes, there will be a third world war, or whatever geopolitical claims you think are appropriate. Before my eyes, as well as the Russian tanks moving through the Volga, there is also another object, a secondary object, namely my own act of judgment. Now, of course, Brentano... (coughs) thinks that he can impose various epistemic restrictions on this secondary object. So to speak, it's always only at the periphery of my vision. I can't, there are various things I can't do to it. I can't focus on it directly. But nevertheless, it is another object before my eyes. And I suppose one way to put the problem I have is that the difference between me and a perfect mind reader on the Brentanian picture, A perfect mind reader who's learning about my mental states, is simply that the perfect mind reader doesn't exist. That's the only difference. So you have the spectatorial model of self-knowledge, at least in this passage, and I think it's problematic. So the second extreme I want to talk about, I'm just going to mention briefly, because I just wanted in there to sort of locate the position I'm interested in, is the kind of thing you see in the work of Alex Byrne. And here, you get uh, a very open, very strong embrace of the notion of neutrality. Okay. So whereas the Brentanian view rejects the idea of neutrality, here you get an embrace of the idea of neutrality. Specifically, what I mean by that is that on Burns' model, the inference, in the Evans case, genuinely is from P to I believe that P. Okay. So what's happened is I've genuinely looked at the world, seen that there are Russian tanks out there, and moved to the conclusion, I believe that P. Now... Byrne has a story about how this works in terms of the notion of self-verifying inferences. Um, and I'm not going to go into it am Happy to discuss it afterwards if people want. What I want to highlight, however, is just the basic structure of the idea here. We started with this worry in the Evans case. How can it be that, if we go back to the quote, how can it be that I get myself in a position to answer the question whether I believe that P by putting into operation whatever procedure I have for answering the question whether P. How can I do that? How can I overcome, for example, this two-topic concern that I seem to be moving from one issue to quite a different one? We've seen the Brentanian response saying, well, you're not really moving from one issue to quite a different one because the, the issue about your own judgments is always there kind of before your eyes at the corner, so to speak. On the burn approach, you say, no, you really are moving from a claim P to the claim that I believe that P. And whilst that might seem very strange, actually it's okay because it's self fulfilling. And the basic idea is that if you accept the premise, then you automatically make the conclusion true. Now, I think I agree, and here I'm not claiming to say anything new at all. I agree with um, many people, O'Brien, Boyle, Moran, who I think are right that a problem with this um, burn view is that whilst it might show that such inferences are safe, it doesn't actually make them intelligible. Why would an agent? Why would it make sense to an agent to believe that he or she could make this move? So that's Bern. And what I want to do is just set it down as another sort of position in the spectrum. We've got a case where you reject neutrality, and we've got a case where you strongly embrace it. And this brings me to the alternative I want to push. What interests me is a position where you try and nuance the notion of neutrality. So, in particular, The content of your belief is just p it's just there will be a third world war the russians will invade ukraine again that's the content of your belief there's no additional content in there about your own act of judgment so it's not the brantanian view but nor is it the Bernian view, where it's just that content plus certain rules of logic that lets you self-ascribe. Instead, it's that content plus the fact that content is presented under a particular mode or form. So this this compromise I'm interested in. Now, um, for those of you who want to see this from a historical perspective, the thing to look out for, particularly in the kind of Kantian and phenomenological traditions, is going to be people who say things like, "Self-awareness is not object awareness." Okay, because what they're trying to articulate there is some notion like the way in which you represent the self is not just another piece of content. So when you judge that P, you judge about Russia, it's not the Brentanian view. It's not there's also contents in there about yourself. However, there's some type of non-objectual self-awareness there. And when you move to explicit belief ascriptions, what you're doing is making that non-objectual self-awareness um, explicit. Okay. And I think Sartre is perhaps the preeminent example of this kind of approach. Um, so, if you look at... Uh, sorry, if you look at the top of page two on your handout, it says this consciousness of consciousness is not positional, which is to say that consciousness is not for itself its own object. Its object is by nature outside of it. So, what he's saying here is that the contents of your belief are all about the world, they're about Russian tanks, but there's also some mode of presentation of them, which will allow you despite initial appearances to the contrary, to move happily from P to, I believe, the P. And I think this is very interesting because of course it's not only um, authors in that tradition or at least authors in that particular part of that tradition who say these kind of things. Um, So if you look at the top of page two, uh, you'll see from O'Brien, it is something about the mode in contrast to content of the state or activity that allows it to play the normative role it does. And if you, you can see, you can make a case for reading Kant in a very similar way, when Kant talks about um, spontaneity, spontaneity, uh, consciousness of myself as an intelligence. The idea is there's some sort of self-awareness that's not the self-awareness of an object, it's something else, and that's what allows me, if we want to be Kantian, to always append the I think to any representation. Okay? So we've got this idea that you see in lots and lots of authors that there's some kind of mode of givenness that provides the basis for self description And that's what I'm interested in. Now, before we move to part two, I just want to um, set aside one way of pursuing this. So one way you might pursue this um, is you might take the Sartrean approach very, very seriously. And I think there's been very interesting work done on this recently by by Matt Boyle, and I'm indebted to him for permission to quote from some of these um, uh, texts that are currently unpublished. Um, I just want to give it as an example of what I... So I think this is a very interesting approach, but I want to also explain why I don't think it's the best approach, and why it's not the one I'm going to go for. So the example, what he's trying to do is tell this kind of Sartrean story about a non-objectual self-awareness. So when you have the proposition that P, that's your content. But it's given under a particular mode, which lets you move to, I believe that P, without uh, problem. And this is what he says. He says, her concluding that there will be a third world war must involve an implicit awareness of her taking this answer to be correct. For if she were not aware of this, then the question would still remain open for her, and her deliberation would not have concluded. So although, what she rep- sorry. so although what she represents as the case is a proposition about the non-mental world, so what you represent is that Russia will invade Ukraine, her manner of representing it depends on an implicit awareness of her own determination about what is correct. So what I'm interested in here is this idea, the manner of representing it is such that you can legitimately move from P to the self-rescriptive claim, I believe, of P. Now, the problem I have is I don't. And he he, he links this approach to Sartre and to this idea of a, a non-positional awareness. Now, the difficult have with this is that what he's doing is trying to exploit this notion of it's not just that I judge that P. I'm also aware of something about myself, namely, I'm aware of my own stance vis-à-vis that judgment. So specifically. I'm aware that I take deliberation on that question to be concluded. So what he's trying to do is build in, in addition to the world-directed content, this kind of mode of presentation which sneaks in, and I say sneaks in, I mean obviously he intends it to sneak in, sneaks in reference to myself. I judge that there will be a third world war, and whilst the content of that judgment is all about the world, it's also an awareness of how I stand vis-a-vis that content, namely, I take the question to be settled and completed. Now, the problem I have with this approach is twofold. So firstly, I'm skeptical as to whether we can get enough of an explanatory gap between the thing that Boyle is positing and the thing he's trying to explain. Okay? So is there really enough of an explanatory gap between what he's positing, namely, an awareness that I take the question of whether P to be settled? And the thing he's trying to explain, namely fully fledged self description, such as I believe that P. And it seems to me, I'm, I don't think there is enough explanatory gap there. The second thing is, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to get on board with the, the kind of spooky content or quasi content that Sartrean approaches yield. What happens with Sartrean approaches is you need to start saying you have some kind of self awareness that's not the same as an awareness of an object, it's not just part of the content of your judgment, it's some other kind of self-awareness, but it really is a kind of content. And it's in this case, it's the content of your awareness of your position vis-a-vis this question, whether P, namely that you take it to be settled. And I'm kind of worried about what this semi-quasi content can be. So. Um, if you think of all the difficulties one has in arguing that perceptual content's not propositional, okay, obviously lots of people believe that and you can perfectly do that. But think of all the difficulties one has in running that argument when you have all the resources of the distinctive nature of perception. It's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for Bohr to show that the content he's appealing to here doesn't also collapse back into propositional content, namely an awareness that I take this question to be settled. But then once that's granted, we're just back to the Brentanian view. We're back to the view that as well as making a judgment about the world, there's also a judgment about my own situation. Okay, so those are the um, two extremes, the issues whether they embrace or reject this neutrality principle. And I've also introduced this possible solution that I'm interested in, whether you can finesse the problem by positing uh, some kind of mode or form under which the content that P is given such that you can then legitimately infer to the content I believe at P. So that's what I've um, set it up so far. Now what I want to do for about the next 10 10 minutes is talk about um, Moran's work and how it relates to this. And once I've done that, so what I'm going to claim is that Moran is usefully seen as an instance of the kind of strategy I've been talking about. And once I've done that, I'm going to talk about why I differ from Moran. Now it might be so it might be helpful just to have have these up on the board so everyone can see this quite starkly. So if we've got P and we've got Okay, so the issue is the relation between these two these two claims. Now, Moran doesn't specifically rely on the sort of mode or form terminology that I've been talking about, or at least not in much of his work. But I think he's well uh, located as an example of the kind of strategy I've been talking about, because for him, the Evans case is not simply a move from P to I believe that P, because you face all the difficulties we talk about. How can you make this move? How can this move be seen as intelligible? Rather this move for him becomes legitimate once P is considered from a particular standpoint or a particular perspective. So I think this notion of a standpoint or perspective Moran does the same kind of work that these ideas of form or mode were doing in other authors. The claim is, it's not Brentano, it's not that the first premise there really actually means P and I judge that P. It's not Burn; it's not the first premise really is just P, but logic will get us to the second one. It's rather... The first premise, the content is just P, but there's some additional factor that explains how we can move to the second one. And around that additional factor is this idea of a practical standpoint. Now, specifically what he argues is that the normal method, normal in both the statistical and evaluative senses of that term, by which we arrive at knowledge of our own propositional mental states, is not a matter of discovering what he calls some antecedent fact about oneself. But rather, it's a matter of making up your mind. Now, I think the simplest way to put his point is something like this. I can learn whether I believe that P by considering the reasons for or against P and reaching a verdict on them. The reason I can do this is that insofar as my verdict determines my belief, I can know of the latter by establishing the former. So if we look there, the idea would be that I can move between these two because when I make a judgment that P, that constitutes or makes it the case that I believe that P. And that's how we can move between them. Um, and he has a nice uh, quote that sums this up, um, which is seven on your handout. It says the primary uh maybe a type of no, it is. The primary thought-gaining expression in the idea of first-person authority may not be that the person himself always knows best what he thinks about something. So the intention here is to reject these kind of spectatorial models that we saw in the Brentano example, where first-person authority is that you have a particularly good viewpoint on some set of facts, but rather, uh, he continues, that it is his business what he thinks about something, that it is up to him. So the idea here is that I can know about my own beliefs because, in a sense, I can decide what they are. I make judgments, and that constitutes uh, facts about my mental states, and that's how I become aware of them. Now, another way to put this is that the self-directed questions, the question about... What do I believe? Do you believe there's going to be a third world law? Is transparent to the world-directed one. So if we go right back to the Evans quote, he said, I get myself in a position to answer the question of whether I believe that P by putting into operation whatever procedure I have for answering the question, whether P. And what Moran is offering is effectively his way of understanding that, how that can be the case. How can it be the case that I can answer a question about what I believe, about me, about an inward-looking issue, by looking outward, by looking at facts about Russia. And the proposal Moran is offering as well, once you see things in this practical or deliberative standpoint, you'll see how it makes sense, namely that when you reach a verdict about whether, the, whether P, that constitutes your belief about it. Okay? So you find out your beliefs not by seeing some preexisting fact, but by making it the case that you have the relevant beliefs through your acts of judgment. Now, of course, Moran doesn't think that all beliefs are reached in this way. So he gives the example of someone who comes to learn that they hate their father only through years and years of therapy. So there, the belief doesn't obey this kind of transparency procedure. So if we call this cause person Sophie, Sophie might think about dear old dad all day long and conclude that he's a lovely guy. It's only having gone through this therapeutic process and particularly seeing herself as she might see any other person from a kind of external or third-person point of view, that she realises, my god, I actually do have this belief that he's a monster, and that explains my behaviour around him. So Moran doesn't deny that such cases exist, but his point is that they're not normal <coughs> in either the evaluative or the normative sense. And you can see one reason for thinking that, which is that it seems like Sophie's belief about her dad is not in good rational order in some sense. Okay, If it can be the case that she can reflect on all the reasons about him and his behaviour for as long as she likes and still not arrive at the conclusion that he's a monster. She only gets that conclusion via therapy. Then it seems that conclusion, is in some sense, floats free of all the reasons about him and his behaviour. And that seems to support the idea that it's not in rationally good order. OK, so... On, sorry, when do we get 435? Like OK. Um, Now, that's the basic Moran idea. What I'm going to do for the remainder of this section, for about seven or eight minutes, I'm going to talk about some objections that have been lodged to his view. And I am going to suggest that he can defeat these objections. Um, And then in the concluding section, I'm going to raise some other worries that I don't think he can handle so easily. There are three kinds of worries. Well, there have been, a Moran's workshop has been hugely influential, and of course rightly so, and so there are many different concerns that have been raised about it. What I'm going to do is just pick out what seem to be three categories of worry that you see often in the literature, and I'm going to suggest that he can, he can handle these. So the first type of worry is concerns what you might call, uh, I suppose, obvious or unquestioned beliefs, beliefs where there's no um, terrible... Amount of deliberation going on. So Shoemaker gives an example of the belief that he's wearing trousers, uh, and he says, "You know, well, I know that I have this belief that I'm wearing trousers, but I don't. I don't regard this as, you know, as open to question in any way. I haven't deliberated about it. I just obviously know it." Now, it seems to me that this is just a misunderstanding. So Moran, Moran often frames this position in terms of talk of deliberation. So there's talk of making up your mind. Um, but I don't think the making up your mind idea needs to have any particular phenomenological um, spin on it. It doesn't need to be that you kind of hum and ah about things. Because it seems to me that the key idea from Rand is just that how do we learn about facts about our mental states? How do we get in a position to self-ascribe claims like the second one on the board there? We do it by making it the case that they're true, by forming corresponding judgments. And it seems then that. He's not guilty first off of any kind of doxastic voluntarism, okay? So it seems perfectly compatible with the Moranian picture that I might look at the world. Okay? Do you think there's going to be a third world war? <coughs> I might look at the world and it might just be so blindingly obvious that I only do any umming and ahhing. I just say yes. Okay. I just see that's the case. There's going to be a third world war. I, it might be the case that when I look at the reasons, there is only one thing to think. But nevertheless, that's still perfectly compatible with the Moranian view that how do I um, learn about my own mental states. In particular, how do I learn about my own mental states in this Evansian kind of transparency way? How do I learn about them by looking outwards? Well, because I constitute them. I look outwards, I see, yes, P, and that constitutes my having the belief that P. So I don't think we're needs to worry about doxastic voluntarism. I don't think he needs to worry about cases where there's only one thing to think. But once you've seen that, I think you can also see that he doesn't need to worry about the Shoemaker issue either because. Why does it matter if when you look at the world and you make a call, there is only one thing to think, and indeed, that thing is so obvious that you don't need to kind of ponder at all. You just look at the world, yes, I have shoes on or whatever. I form the judgment that p. On the Moranian line, that will then enable me to get the conclusion that I believe that people will be able to get to the self-descriptive content. So it seems that what matters for Moran is this relation between making a call about the world and thus constituting your own belief it doesn't seem terribly worrying if making a call about the world is done very quickly or is the obvious call to make or something like that. So I'm not concerned by the shoemaker problem. And I think that stands for a whole class of examples in which um, they're effectively picking up on Moran's use of deliberation or this idea that making up your mind must be a, a long or difficult process. I think all that matters for Moran is the idea that making world-directed judgment constitutes mental state facts. And thus, you can know about the latter by doing the former. Second group of classes they want to talk about um, are generally examples where things pop into your head or people often talk about free-floating thoughts or thoughts coming out of the blue or something like that. Um, So Kassam has a nice example where you're sitting there writing and it just suddenly occurs to you that today is the first of the month. Now, these pose a problem for Moran for the following reason. It seems that um, you know that you believe that today is the first of the month when this happens. But it doesn't seem as if you've reached that conclusion by making any call about the world. You haven't studied the world as you do in the Evans case. You haven't sort of looked at the facts out in the world. It's just popped into your head and you realize, I believe that today is the first of the month. So I suppose to put this more formally, what we're dealing with here is cases where... So these aren't sensations. These are reason-responsive claims. Okay, So if I, if it were then proved to me that today wasn't the first of the month, I would lose the belief. They're not um, sensations. They're reason-responsive. But I haven't arrived at them by a process of following through my reasons. Okay, So it's not like the Third World War example. Now, how can we deal with these cases if we're around? Well, it seems to me that there are two tactics that we can employ. Effectively, we should divide and conquer. So, and this divide and conquer strategy is interesting because it speaks to the question of how we understand notions like activity and passivity in this context. So one option is to say, well, I think we should say them like this, there are two possibilities here. Either you really have a judgment here, you really are judging that today is the first of the month. It's a commitment, it's the kind of thing you'll be willing to defend, it's the kind of thing you'll be willing to give reasons for and so on. And if that's the case, then I think I want to say that it is like the Shoemaker instance. You formed a judgment about the world, and that's how, in line with Moran, you've got the first premise there that's constituted facts about you, and that's how you get to the second premise. We'll talk more about the details of that in a minute. But you can just apply the same Moranian notion. You constitute the self-directed facts by making judgments about world-directed facts. And it's just like the Shoemaker case. It's just that you've done this very quickly. You've just made this judgment very quickly, very spontaneously. Um, and one way to motivate this is to think about the notion of a spontaneous or immediate action. Okay, so there are lots of actions we might undertake just spontaneously, without thinking, without reflection, um, that are nevertheless still actions. So similarly, this belief that pops into your head may nevertheless be a making up your mind in the Moranian sense. Another possibility, the other, the other arm of the divided rule tactic is to say, well, if perhaps this isn't a commitment in that sense, perhaps it's not something you'll be willing to defend, it's not something you would be willing to give reasons to for, perhaps it's literally just sort of floated in front of your mind in the way that an image of you know, somewhere you once visited might do. If that's the case, then I think we can say, well, this is, whilst it is a proposition, that there will be, sorry, that today is the first of the month. We can basically treat it as a sensation. It's valency is that of a sensation. You're completely passive with respect to it. It's just sort of drifted before your vision, so to speak, and we can deal with it by whatever story we will use to deal with sensations. So we can divide and rule to deal with these uh, free-floating thought cases or out-of-the-blue thoughts or mind-wandering, kind of daydreaming cases. Either they're judgments, in which case you just run the Moran story, now the Moran story may not work, and we'll come to the problems with a minute, but there's no reason here why it shouldn't work. Either judgments you run the Moran story, or they are, we can treat them as these kind of this class of what I might, what you might call propositional sensations. The last example I want to give of um, concerning worries you might have um, about Moran is um, the Reed case. So, and again I this is this is a uh, an example often given in the literature or developed in the literature which is meant to show a problem from Rand's view, and I don't think it does. So the, the case is something like this, and this is a nice case because it's one we're all probably familiar with. So, Reed does it with um, Penny. Penny's a, a forgetful economist, and what happened is that in the past, Penny's written this immensely complicated book on taxation. But it was some years previous, and she no longer directly works on the issues. Now, someone comes to her and says, You know, Penny, you know, I've learned so much from your work. I'm really interested in asking you about this particular issue that I've been thinking about in the context of taxation. This is the kind of uh, brisant conversations these people have. So, so tell, me, tell me what you think about this particular tax. Now, Penny knows that she thinks something about this. She had some belief about this, and she maybe she read a whole chat about it, but she can't remember what it is. Okay. So it's a bit like this. You know, says, you know, You've got beliefs about externalism. You think, oh, yeah, I do have beliefs about externalism, but I can't, I can't actually remember what they are. Um, so what happens is Penny goes back to her office and she takes from the shelf her own book from some years ago and she looks up Chapter 7 to the discussion of this tax, and she sees there that it says this tax is a very bad thing. Now the question, what Reed wants to do with this case, is he wants to say, in looking in the book, Penny learns that she believes that P. Furthermore, this is an epistemically virtuous way to learn that you believe that P. Because if she would now, if instead of going to her office, if she just thought, well, what do I think about this tax? Um, Then her answer wouldn't have come from a good place. She no longer works on the issue. She's forgotten all the kind of subtleties of it. So it's epistemically virtuous to establish her beliefs by going and looking at this old book. But, and this is the point Reid wants to make, He suggests that this is a prime example of coming to know your own mind through the kind of third-person learning antecedent fact approach that Moran is attacking. And it's not a derivative or strange case like Sophia and the therapy. It's rationally virtuous. It's the best way to acquire the belief in this case. But it's not got anything to do with making up your own mind, distinctive first-person authority. You could have done this... With, you could have gone and looked in anyone's book. You've learned about your beliefs using a method that you could equally have applied to anyone. So that's um, this third concern that people push against around. And the reason I don't think this works is something like, like the following. It seems to me that if we're going to say that Penny learns about a belief when she looks in this book and sees that it says P, if we're going to say that she learns that she believes that P by doing that, we need, it needs to be the case that what she finds there seems to her at that very moment to be a plausible claim. Okay. Because if it doesn't seem to be a plausible claim, you know, if she went and looked at the book and immediately thought, my God, what was I thinking? That sounds madness. Then it would seem odd to think that she'd learned about her beliefs through looking at the book. Or at least it would be odd to think that she learned about her belief, that P, through looking at the book, because of course she repudiates it. So, it needs to be that she finds what it says in the book to be plausible at the moment that she opens it. But if that's the case, then it seems the natural story to tell about what's going on here is just something like, well, it's, it's just as in the general Moran structure. What's happening is that she's looking at the world to reach a conclusion about Weatherpeat, and thus constituting her belief about whether she, about Pete. But it's just, in this case, her looking at the world doesn't take the form of looking out the window or thinking about the UN. It takes the case of taking what is effectively testimony from this book. So what I'm suggesting, in effect, is that the Reed case can be dealt with by Moran by simply saying, well, um, it's not that here you have an instance where you learn about your own beliefs through this rationally virtuous and yet essentially third-person method. Rather, it's still exactly the line I've been pushing. You learn about your own beliefs by constituting them, by making up your mind. She learns about her belief that P by making the judgment that P. It's simply, in this case, she's made the judgment that P, partly on the basis of certain testimony about the world, and that testimony is in came, contained in this book. Now, Reed, Reed talks about this kind of um, strategy. And he has some responses to it, but I don't think they, they cover the point. So, one of the responses he suggests, for example, is well, if that's what's going on, why does she take her own book off the shelf? Okay. Why did not she go in and take the book of, say, the acknowledged master, let's call her Jane, Jane's book, the acknowledged master of taxation theory. Why isn't she going to take Jane's book off the shelf? Um, but this, there seem to be very good reasons why she takes her own book. And one is there's clearly a social pressure, psychological pressure towards consistency. So unless there's a significant epistemic difference, we're going to generally privilege beliefs that we held prior, Um, so that's why she takes her own book. Another reason is that even if Jane is the acknowledged master, it seems that Penny knows that the data contained in her book is the data that when she last thought about it, she found most plausible, most convincing. And given the likely psychological continuity between herself then and herself now, it seems, again, reasonable to take her own book. To, because what she's doing, effectively, is taking, <clears throat> taking testimony from a source that shares many of the same assumptions as herself. So, what we've had, then, is this initial problem. We've had the Evans case. How can it be... How do I know, how am I able to self-ascribe my own mental states? You could have a theory where you say, well, you've got some sort of distinctive, introspective capacity, and... Of course, there are such theories and they have familiar problems. What Evans offers is this kind of transparency-driven approach. We say, well, look, there's nothing weird going on here. You self describe your beliefs just by looking outwards. Okay? And then the question is, how, how can we cash that idea? And we went through these uh, two options, the Brentanian option and the Bernian option, for trying to make sense of what seems attractive at Evans, namely that I'm able somehow to answer the question of, what do I believe by looking out there at the world alone? We looked at those two options, and I started to push this kind of alternative where it's not that there's always content about yourself. It's not Brentano. It's not that there's nothing but P plus logic. It's not burn. Instead, it's P under a particular guise or mode. And I've tried to locate Moran in relation to that. So I think what Moran is doing is saying, well, it's not just the fact. It's not just an inference from the first premise there to the second premise, because that would be hard to explain. It's rather that when you see this whole issue from this practical first-person standpoint, you'll see that the question of what you believe is not about finding out some pre-existing fact. It's about making a decision. And so you answer what you believe by making a decision, and you make that decision by looking at the facts out there. And so you conclude that P, and that constitutes your believing and I've tried to defend Moran against some initial objections. What I want to do now, in the final section, is to a point where I think Moran goes wrong. And perhaps the best way to see this is if we, go, if we go right back to the Evans issue for a moment to just look briefly at how Moran might or might not answer the problems that were set out there. And you can see you might, you might worry that he can't... He, you might worry on both scores, okay? So I said the Evans, the Evans example raised two issues. One is, effectively, how you get self-directed content. How do you move from content just about the world, content involving reference to the self? The other is the question of how judgment and belief relates. How do I move from judgments about things to conclusions involving beliefs, given that there are these kind of worries that I alluded to in Peacock's example, whereby... You might judge that P to your blue in the face, but actually you don't really believe it. And you can think of, uh, i give the example of um, a prejudice in Peacock's case. You know, I swear blind that I treat everyone equally, regardless of race, creed, colour, whatever. But actually, when you look at my behaviour, I'm clearly a monstrous bigot. So you've got these kind of judgment, um, belief misalignments. Now, if we go back to Moran and the um, Evans case. You can see you might raise concerns on both scores. Okay, So you might say, well, suppose we go through Moran's procedure. Suppose we you know, look at the world and we conclude, yes, P. P is the case. How do we get to I believe that P? Where exactly does the first personal content come in? And this is a point that was originally raised by Shoemaker, and so I'm not try and say that the original here. You might have this concern about Moran still. well how how exactly does the first person content come out? Second concern you might have is, well, how what's been said to deal with this judgment to belief issue? I mean, could it not be the case that I judge that P, but somehow that falls short of giving me the requisite belief, like the guy in Peacock's example, or like the person who's convinced they're not prejudiced, but in fact they are. So what I'm going to do in the um, last 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to look at, um, I'm going to focus particularly on the judgment belief um, relation question. Um, And I'm going to do that partly by linking it to some some sort of general, I guess, methodological issues about how you might think about self-knowledge that I think um, Michel Foucault articulated um, very deeply. So I'm going to talk about those. I'm not going to talk, just because I don't have time, about the, the self-ascription question particularly. I'm not going to talk about where exactly Moran gets the I content from. I'm going to talk rather about where he gets the belief bit from, given that he starts with judgments. So you've got these two moves. You start with judgments, and somehow you get beliefs and I. I'm going to talk about how you get the belief bit. Um, but obviously, I'll be happy to talk about the I bit in discussion if people want. So one way to approach the issue is in terms of the question of inference, and um, if you look at your handout on sorry, yeah, on the top of three, there's a nice um, remark from um, Kasim Kasam, which highlights the kind of worry that you might have here. So he says, "My knowledge that P is epistemically immediate, only if my justification for believing P does not come even in part from my having justification to believe other." Supporting propositions my knowledge that P is psychologically immediate only if it's not acquired by conscious reasoning or inference If I come to know that I believe that P by employing the transparency procedure So this is Moranian idea of looking at the world Then my knowledge does not appear to be immediate in either sense So the worry here is that um, We think kind of pre-intuitively that knowledge of my own beliefs is very immediate So and you can see the motivation here, right? Suppose you ask me, what does, <coughs> what does Sherry believe about something? Okay, I might have to do all kinds of inference I might have to look at her behaviour, but the intuition is that if you ask me what do I believe about something, I don't need to do any of this uh, working stuff out, this sort of inference. It's just immediate and obvious. I know my own beliefs straightforwardly. Now what Kasam is pointing out is, can Moran respect that? Well, I think because Sam's worry is half right. So I think Moran can perfectly respect psychological immediacy. So I think he can perfectly respect the fact that when I make the kind of move he's talking about, there's no conscious feeling of inference or conscious sort of going through a process. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that my original judgment that P might just be immediate, like in the Shoemaker case. I don't need to arm and R about it. And secondly, the move then from P to I believe that P, I think, is for reasons I'm about to come to, so kind of automatic in a lot of our way of thinking about ourselves that again, it's not something we're conscious of or that we need to reflect on or that has any kind of phenomenological pause time. We just do it immediately and automatically in the vast, vast majority of cases. So I don't think Sam's right about psychological immediacy, but I think he's clearly right about epistemic immediacy because the way the Moran um, account works is that. In order to be able to make sense of the Evans case from the first-person point of view, you need to know something like, some principle like, if I judge that P, then I believe that P. Okay? So you need to know some kind of principle linking these two premises. You need to know, effectively, the kind of thing that Moran is trying to articulate. You need to know something like, when you form judgments about the world, those judgments constitute your beliefs and so by making a judgment about world-directed facts like Russian tank movements, you can constitute and thus provide answers to self-directed questions about what you do or don't believe. So you need to know some kind of principle like this. Um, you need to know a principle saying effectively, you can move from the first premise on the board to the second premise on the board because you're seeing things from this deliberative first-person standpoint where making judgments at P constitutes the relevant mental states facts. Now, I don't regard that in itself as problematic. Um, one reason I don't regard it as problematic seems, you know, you might think, but how I thought you said that self-knowledge was immediate, and now you're telling me that it's inferential in some important sense. And I think here we should just accept that it is inferential in this sense. The immediacy, the way self-knowledge is immediate, is that we don't need to look at external behavior. Okay? We don't need to look at my own external behavior to learn what I believe about something. But it seems the inference here is not to do with external behavior. It's to do with a kind of principle about the relation between judgment and belief. So I, don't think, the inf- I think we should just accept that self-knowledge is inferential in this way and we should accept that that's okay. I think also we're still better off than approaches like the Boylean approach, because the Boylean approach, the one I talked about at the end of the first section, this kind of Sartrean idea where there's a, an, a, a quasi-content, some sort of awareness of my own position vis-à-vis the proposition, relies on this strange sort of non-positional awareness, and of course the issue is what is non-positional awareness, and the difficult research which he never really tells us. Whereas here you don't have any of this strange quasi-content; you just have straightforward content, you have a judgment about the world, you have a judgment about yourself, and the point is just that they're connected by this principle. You know normally that when you judge that P, it follows that you have the corresponding belief and so you can self-ascribe the corresponding belief. So I don't think it's problematic that the Moran account is inferential. What I think is problematic, however, is the relationship between judgment and belief as it's understood by Moran and indeed by um, by Boyle when he's closest to Moran. And here's why. It seems clear that judgment and belief can fail to align. Okay? So think of the prejudice case. Okay? You judge that P, you don't have the corresponding belief. It also seems that there's a very ready ontological reason for why you might think there's going to be a pervasive misalignment. Okay? So if you think of judgments as a current mental states and you think of beliefs as standing dispositions, it's not going to be surprising that sometimes just going through one judgment isn't enough to get your beliefs in the right order, so to speak. And there can be lots of reasons for this. So one case is the belief is highly sedimented in. So it's become a matter of habit, it's a matter of... Uh, networking with your various, for example, motor intentional dispossessions. So I might judge that my keys are now in my bag, but if I kept them in my pocket for the last 20 years, I'm always, my behavior is always going to follow that belief, at least for some time. Another case is where the relevant beliefs are deeply networked with effective commitments or with notions of your own identity. So for example, religious beliefs here are a good example. You might judge all you want, that there's no original sin, but if you spent the last 20 years believing it, it's going to be very difficult to shift that belief. So you can get these pervasive judgment belief misalignments. Now, it's worth to say this, this, is a different, this is a different problem from the Reed case, okay? So I think the reason Reed's example fails is that he's still doing things from the first-person point of view, okay? Penny goes and looks in the book. Whereas what I'm pointing out is that you can have these first-person judgments, you can conclude that P, but once you see beliefs as effectively behavioral dispositions, it then seems very natural to think maybe your judgments and your beliefs don't match up. So this brings me to the proposal I want to make um, about why I differ from Moran. I think that when you judge that P, you're exerting a distinctive kind of control or causal power on yourself. Now, when there are no countervailing causal forces... So, for example, there aren't strongly networked, effective, or motor-intentional patterns. Exerting this power, judging that P, is indeed sufficient for believing that P, i.e. for acquiring the relevant behavioral dispositions. Okay, so you can see this very easily with cases where you don't really care. Okay, so I judge that Paris is in France. I have the belief that Paris is in France. It's completely seamless, completely frictionless. However, there are lots of cases where this is going to break down. So I agree with Moran in the sense that what I think is right about Moran is this idea that, how do we come how do we come to know or how do we get in a position to self-ascribe mental states, say things like I believe that P?" Well, we can do it by looking outwards by making judgments about the world. And the reason we can do it by looking outwards. Moran is right is because we exert a kind of authority over ourselves. When I conclude that P, that will typically constitute my belief that P that's his view. Where I, what I think is right is this notion of authority. I make it the case that I have the relevant belief by undertaking the act of judgment. Where I differ from him is that I think this is an act of causal control that can obviously go awry. Okay, so it's not an automatic or um, indeed general phenomenon as we're about to see that judging that P will yield the corresponding belief. Rather judging that P is, is exerting a kind of causal control to try and get my beliefs in line and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it doesn't. Now, Boyle, in recent work, has talked about this kind of causal model. He calls it the process, process model. Um, and he's raised various criticisms of it. Um, and I discussed some of them in the paper. What I want to do here, I think, is just I'm just going to focus on what seems the most important one, which is, is this. So... Both he and Moran think that my kind of proposal can't work because it makes the link between judging and believing too external. Okay? As I've talked about it, judging is exerting a kind of causal pull that might bring about the belief, but equally it might not. And we should think of it just in causal terms. It's another causal factor chucked into the mix. And they think this is the wrong way to think about the relation between judgment and belief. And they have, so Boyd has a nice of putting it, he says you know, something like, your relation to your beliefs is not the same as your relation to your bicycle. Okay. It's not that you have this kind of external duty to keep them up and keep them in good order. There's some more intimate connection. And if you look at your handouts on, on the penultimate page, the bottom of the page, three, he says, there is surely an intuitive contrast between my power to govern whether I have a stomachache and my power to govern whether I believe Pete." Whereas in the former case, my control over the relevant condition is at best indirect. in the latter one wants to say my control may be direct. So what he's trying to do here is push against this kind of causal model by saying, well, if the causal model were correct, my control over my beliefs would just be like my control over my stomach aches. There are various causal things I can do to bring about or prevent stomach aches. There are various causal things of my approach that I can do to bring about or change beliefs. And he thinks that clearly beliefs and stomach aches are not the same, so the approach doesn't work. Now, it seems to me clearly he's right that beliefs and stomach aches aren't the same. Okay, so there are lots and lots of differences. So, for example, in judging, I can change my beliefs by acquiring a new concept. So I might do some judging, and I might come to have a new concept. And that exerts all kinds of semantic and perhaps syntactic changes on my beliefs. And there's no parallel to those notions in the stomach ache case. So clearly there are differences. On the other hand, it seems to me that the gap between the stomachache case and the belief case is not as black and white as Boyle would like to think. So just as I can manipulate the environment to reduce the likelihood of indigestion, there are countless devices which I employ to bridge the potential gap between judgment and belief, okay, which kind of get over the causal hump that I've been talking about. And what I've got in mind here is the kind of very, very detailed historical analysis of practices like um, diary keeping of mutual observation of public Uh, statements of intent, of rituals of memorization, of uh, correspondence. All these are practices of ways of trying to get my judgments and beliefs to line up, to give my judgments enough causal power to turn into beliefs, so to speak. Um, And I think that Foucault's contribution to this is that he's provided us with the most detailed study of these practices, of, for example, practices of uh, memorization. Ways in which you don't just make the judgment and then automatically get the belief, but you need to make the judgment again and again in very specific circumstances to give it enough causal weight to bring about the requisite um, outcome. So this brings me, I guess, to the final point. And to, I suppose, to some of the kind of methodological difference I see between myself and Moran. Moran obviously re- recognizes that there are cratic cases, okay? the cases we have the judgment, we don't have the corresponding belief. And I can likewise accommodate his point that, and this equation says, in the case of ordinary theoretical reasoning, which issues in a belief, there is no further thing that the person does in order to acquire the relevant belief once his reason has led him to it. So I completely agree with that, because those are frictionless cases. Those are like the Paris is in France case. I formed the judgment, and that just is to have the corresponding belief. So, in a sense, then what's at stake between me and is how we should think about the anomalous cases, the cases where there's misalignment between judgment and belief and whether we should think about those cases, whether we should think seriously enough that we don't think the judgment belief relationship is constitutive but rather whether we're willing to see it as causal and rather whether we're willing to um, yeah, how we think about these, these cases of misalignment, these cases where judgment doesn't generate belief. Now, In the literature it's often put in terms of well-being or rationality or something like that. So Moran often talks about if you have a judgment, belief, alignment, that's a kind of paradigm case of rationality. But I think it's not that simple. I think these notions of rationality and, and mental good health are too vague and too slippery to be much help here. So we can easily imagine, and mcgear um, has got some very nice examples of this, um, we can easily imagine cases where someone has a perfect judgment-belief alignment. Whenever they make a judgment, they have the corresponding belief. But actually, this is a kind of veil for a disturbing pattern of rationalization. Um, and you think in lots of other ways, they're not a terribly psychologically healthy or insightful person. Similarly, you can imagine someone who often takes a sort of third-person stance on themselves and says, Well, you know, I see myself in just, just one one." Person out there who just happens to be me, and I will try and make sense of my behaviour as I might make sense of the behaviour of any other person. And you can imagine a case in which that might be a very healthy attitude to have. So I don't think um, these notions of rationality and mental health are clear enough to um, give us a grip here. I think there are just too many notions of what it is to be rational, what it is to be mentally healthy. But so I think, I guess, in summary, what I, what I want to say is that the difference between me and Moran comes down to something like this. As I see it, the transparency procedure retains a distinctive and central role in the context of self-knowledge. And this is because what I'm offering is an agency theory. By judging that P, I make it the case in these frictionless examples that I have the relevant belief. And so if I know that principle, then I can typically self-ascribe beliefs just by undertaking acts of judgment. Now, you might say, oh, but why, why are you bring in knowing this principle? How do we get that? But as I've tried to show, even Moran has to allow that you need to know this principle. Okay. In the frictionless cases, we can bring in, uh, we know this principle, and thus we're able to self-ascribe on the basis of judgments about the world. Yet, I think, and this is why I differ from Moran, we need to simultaneously recognize that this story about agency is part of a much, much, much broader picture about the variety of ways in which individuals seek to author or determine themselves. So I think judgment, judgment, making judgments about the world and thus bringing about beliefs, is just one mechanism through which agents try to self-author or self-determine. And it is never found. It's a defeasible device. Okay? We've seen these kind of cases, the prejudice case, where it fails. And it's never found in isolation from or unsupported by other more external or indirect ways of shaping our beliefs, such as repetition or ritual or um, the kind of distinctive examples that Foucault likes, diary-keeping cases or mutual observation cases or something like that. So judgment is a distinctive way of shaping ourselves, but it's never found in isolation from, and it mustn't be seen in isolation from, these cases where, to borrow a phrase from Moran, something is inflicted on me, even if I'm the one inflicting it. So the kind of ultimate methodological point I want is that we should see these issues about self-knowledge in the context of a broader story about self-formation and self-determination, in which judgment, and particularly the thing Moran is exploiting, the ability of judgment to determine belief, is just one mechanism among many for self-formation. And that brings me to the quote that's at the top of the paper. In short, it is a matter of placing the imperative to know oneself which appears so characteristic of our civilization, back in the much broader interrogation that serves as explicit or implicit context. What should one do with oneself? What work should be carried out on the self? That, I think, is correct. Thank you.